I pray that I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Are you happy? Or are you unhappy that I've just asked you that question? It's a difficult question to answer for many of us because we don't really warm to that word happiness. It can sound too sugary, contaminated by self-help gurus, or ghastly little yellow faces sent annoyingly in texts. Other terms for happiness around are equally off-putting, like wellness, which sounds like a town in Norfolk, my dislike of the word happiness is probably due to its implication that it's a permanent state you can reach if you just try. The word sits there rather smugly, saying, here I am, others have found me, why can't you? The United States Declaration of Independence talks of the pursuit of happiness. But we know that mere pursuit of it for itself can be the cause of much unhappiness and lead us into dangerous places. If you treat happiness as an end in itself and not something to be enjoyed periodically whilst pursuing other ends, it can leave us, well, unhappy. Now here we are in a church and you might be asking what's happiness got to do with it anyway? Surely we were promised a cross, not a massage. And look at us now in our Lenten array, looking a bit glum. While our Christian ancestors may not have been interested in happiness as a feeling, but they were concerned for balance in life. They were influenced by the ancient Greek thinker, Aristotle, who thought that the nearest thing to happiness was the process of trying to live virtuously, that is, in some sort of balance. Virtues for him were those things that lie somewhere between excess and deficiency. So to eat is good. Gluttony is excess. Starvation is deficiency not good. So to eat virtuously means a balance between the two. And working with that idea, Christians often then saw sins as good things, but taken to excess. It's good to have self-esteem, but vanity becomes the sin, and so on. And a Christian understanding of happiness became a discovered joy of contemplation about these things, looking beneath the surface and the delight in discovering the virtue, the balance. It all sounds a little pious until you think that it's not unlikely that on our deathbed we might wish we had spent more time looking around us, reflecting on the things that matter, 
and taken a bit more care in how we treated people and the world and sought a better equilibrium. At the heart of Christianity is a belief that God has given us a great gift and it is called our being and that we are asked to give one gift back in return called our becoming, who we become. We believe in two conversions. The one that happens when this suddenly makes sense somehow. Something inside stirs. And the second is that of the rest of one's lifetime, slowly, painfully trying to adjust to this new light, a way of being human not yet tried. So many religious traditions point us to that idea of journey, pilgrimage, a road. The early Christians called it the way. Implied here is that life is not about a search for permanent states or high pleasing experiences, but rather calls us to what we might term spiritual adventure, demanding of us an attention to those inner resources that must deal with change and hurt, the new, the unknown, and so on. Demanding of us also the insight to understand that we human beings need to be schooled in our relationships. Because today we can think that we are in relationship with people when actually what we are doing is assuring ourselves we are not alone. The man I read of recently who had 541 friends on Facebook comes to mind. Not one of them knew that he was dead. It's a busy world, a very busy world. It's the kind of a world that consumes us, drains our souls, dries out our hearts, dampens our spirits, makes living more a series of duties than a joyful mystery. We find ourselves spending life too tired to garden, too distracted to read, too busy to talk, too plagued by people and deadlines to organize our lives, to reflect on our futures, to appreciate our present. We simply go on, day after day after day. Where is what it means to be human in all that? Where is God in all that? How shall we ever get the most out of life if life itself is our greatest obstacle? In the gospel, Jesus gives us a starting point. Jesus detaches himself from the confrontation of that righteous mob and the woman. He doesn't bristle and enter into argument. He stoops. He doodles with his finger in the dust. The message here is not that we should opt out of confrontations, which may sometimes be necessary, but that if we want to see clearly and engage profoundly, there are times when you have to stoop and stop. You disengage to clarify and to connect at a better depth. What does that mean for us? 
Awareness is diminished by overstimulation, and unawareness is the root of all evil. Like yesterday's pancakes, our Western lives can be fat and flat. Our Lent fasting should really be a conscious effort to reduce this mentality we call busy, to pull us outside of crowd mentalities, to beware of quick judgments, beware of quick, cruel words, and with Christ in that dust to stoop, to clarify, and connect. Lent is a snowfall in the soul. The air changes. Everything slows down, is heard differently, with a fresher light. It is a time for you, for a more purposeful reflection, a time that is poised for better balance. With so much for you, and therefore those in your life, and therefore even for the world. To dust you shall return. We will hear that in a moment as a small cross is placed on our head, that place where decisions are made from, that place of human will. At the end of my life, I hope I will ask myself not, was I happy? Or did I search for happiness properly? But did I live well? Did I take time to contemplate this unique little life gifted to me? Did I respond in kind, in some proportion? If I can even begin to think that, well, I did try then I will claim my life and my death to have been happy. And I will hold then to the hope in Christ that that happiness will turn to joy. 